encouraged, not burdened by the history that they create. They know what is expected of them. They are Manchester United. by Tom Adams from Varian Football Works. Uh, together, we are going to talk about Manchester United's 4-3 loss to Bayern Munich in the Champions League uh, last week. First of all, Tom, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here talking about what was well and truly a really, really bizarre match where the scoreline maybe necessarily did not finish or did not portray what exactly was unfolding on the pitch. Yeah, uh, it was 3-1 for for a while in the second half and it seemed like both teams kind of went on cruise control and it seemed like three, one was a pretty fair result. Um, I mean, Manchester United had a decent opening 20 minutes of the match and then, you know, started the second half really looking for something and then just switched off again. Uh, or, but, you know, maybe unluckily with the Christian Eriksen, uh, penalty, but we don't have to get into the, um, the discourse of UEFA versus Premier League handball rules. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so different. It seems like they're way more strict in UEFA than they are in any of the domestic leagues, at least with the Premier League as someone who watches a lot of the Premier League in addition to Bayern Munich. Probably a little bit hard done for Christian Eriksen there, but I mean, the decision was the decision. I thought that was a key and pivotal moment in the match, uh, especially when it made it 3-1, Harry Kane stepped up. It was like we were trading off periods of momentum and as you just mentioned, kind of trading off periods of cruise control, like taking our foot off the gas a little bit and just oddly allowed one another back into the match at varying times when we just should not have let our foot off the gas. And that's how we wound up ending up with that 4-3 scoreline. I really, like, especially from a Bayern standpoint, um, I know that you would have your views on the scoreline as well, but from a Bayern standpoint, for how much control we had for large portions of proceedings, like I think even Harry Kane said it himself, after the match that it really should have been four or five to one instead of ever being, you know, uh, three to two as it had turned out with uh, obviously Casemiro scoring those two goals. Yeah. I, I did want to ask you, um, and you know, when we did the Q and a, this was, you know, kind of this, the sense I was getting, but this felt like a game where if United had played the Bayern Munich of like four or five years ago, they would have lost five now. Um, and they probably would have had even less of the ball. Um, and I don't, I don't know whether it's, you know, the changes in managers over the last couple of years, but what, what has kind of changed, uh, about Bayern Munich where it, it seems like that possession control part of their game has kind of gone away a little bit. It definitely, it is. And you mentioned this obviously in the Bundesliga from the external view, a lot of people look at this and say, oh, it's a one horse race. As far as the league as a whole, we, you know, we've won 11 straight, very, very narrowly. I got number 11 last season. For those who don't know, Borussia Dortmund basically blew it by not winning on the final match day. And we won it by virtue of scoring a late, late goal against FC Kuhn on the final match day of the season, where we had even fired our CEO in Oliver Kahn and sporting director in Hassan Salihamidzic. And going back to that point I made about the Achilles heel, we obviously are always in matches where we have the lion's share of possession. And so often it's been our Achilles heel when teams really bunker in defensively against us and hit us on the break if we have, you know, center backs out of position, uh, especially with our wide backs who are always in advanced positions, whether it was, you know, seasons ago with Alfonso Davies, Benjamin Pavard, 
or in the case of the Champions League, Alfonso Davies and Conrad Leimer, mind you, who's a center midfielder by trade. That's where he most often played at RB Leipzig and also for the Austrian national team. That was actually a point of concern for me because I thought, uh, whatchamacallit, like, I thought Rashford was really going to have a field day on that side up against Leimer because we have a fit right back in Nusser Masrawi, and it seems that Thomas Tuchel has been making the decision to use Conrad Leimer there when he doesn't have that proper faith in Masrawi. But a lot of systems have been different. I know at Bayern, the back three versus a back four or an inverted back five, if you will, with those two really high advanced wingbacks has been a point of contention between Tuchel, uh, Julian Nagelsmann, going back to Hansi Flick. The Hansi Flick Bayern, it was almost kind of like this 4-3 win over Manchester United. We we rarely kept clean sheets. Uh, we would usually wind up going into halftime one or two goals down and then come back. That was just very much the uh, the package you got with that Hansi Flick trouble winning 2019-2020 team. But it's a lot of the same problems where we would just get hit on the break or get too complacent. Obviously, when you have these teams bunkered down defensively, and that's not to say that's what Manchester United did at all. I, I thought you guys did have your your moments when you really came at us, especially on that side with, uh, was it Pelestri? Is that how you say his name? Who was yeah, playing Pelestri. on that side? Pelestri and then Fernandez in the middle and Rashford kind of all working behind Rasmus Hoyland. Uh, and I actually thought, you know, looking back, I'm like, why doesn't Ten Hag play Anthony Martial more? I thought he was pretty sharp when he came on. Sent uh, Leon Goretzka for hot dogs right near the touchline in the buildup. I think it was to Casemiro's first goal. Um, I think he was uh, very much the playmaker creator for that goal. Um, yeah, Martial is a weird one. It's it's like it, yeah, it, and for, I mean, for the last year has mostly been because he hasn't been fit. It's it's just yeah, which I, is a uh, totally you, understandable too. Yeah, I think when and you I play think, as much, I mean, he's been a starter on most teams he's been on since he was 17 years old. So I, I think some mm. of that is just catching up to him now as he's 26, 27. But um, last year it was just muscle injuries every other game. And he just, he just couldn't stay on the pitch. Well, and even as someone, as I mentioned, who watches a lot of premier league, actually my mother is a Manchester United fan as well, which is kind of funny because I'm a Liverpool fan as well. But I think I know, I don't remember when Eric Ten Hag said this, but objectively he's right. I mean, he's not wrong at all. I mean, as of the beginning of this season, he's not had his best, most preferred starting 11 available. I don't know if he said that after the Brighton loss, after or before Bayern Munich or before the win over Burnley, but I think it was uh, ahead of the Bayern match. And I mean, I, I do think, you know, some of the acquisitions you've made, I think that that Bayern game could have been very different had those players been fit and in form, you know, Mason Mounts, especially. Sofian Amrabat, who's somebody that Bayern was very heavily linked with. Um, and that's one of the things, going back to your question, the systems. I mean, it very much seems like with, with Tuchel, he's been given the keys, right? Because uh, we had fired our sporting director, fired the CEO, and all of a sudden we have this uh, quote-unquote transfer committee that was pretty much comprised of him, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, who made a return to the supervisory board, Jan Christian Driessen, who stepped in as CEO, uh, and Uli Honus, who's kind of just a, a role, an honorary president's role, if you will, in the supervisory board. And all of a sudden, we've been linked with a player like Harry Kane. And as we know, that wound up happening. One of the most blockbuster marquee moves, I think, that will help reduce the polarity between the Premier League and the Bundesliga and English and German football in general. So it, never before has it ever seemed where 
a Bayern manager has had this much power or have had this much say. Tuchel came into a tricky situation last season. I think a lot of Bayern fans, the general consensus was we might have had a better chance against Man City in the Champions League quarterfinals had the club not made the decision to get rid of Nagelsmann kind of in that weird period where they did. I kind of am of that standpoint as well. I was a little bit blindsided and shocked that they made the decision when they did. But even with all these managers, it's always the same style. The Bayern philosophy ever since, you know, going back to Jep Heinkes, Pep Guardiola, all of these previous managers is you're going to have the lion's share of possession. You need to be dominant in your possession. You need to maintain possession. So that always leaves gaps open in the back when teams want to hit you on the break, be physical, take their chances, rely on set pieces. And, and I feel like so much of uh, Bayern's uh, shortcomings season after season where they do slip up in either the Bundesliga, the FA Pokal, or the Champions League, right? I mean, namely the Champions League, you, you will wind up playing teams that are as good as you, if not better. So it might not be you're having as much of possession, but at least in the domestic competitions, it's always getting hit on that Achilles heel or being too complacent. And especially given the fact that we don't have Manuel Neuer fit and we're playing with Sven Ulreich uh, and we wound up getting a backup keeper for him from uh, Israel who is getting set to make his debut tomorrow in the Pokal against uh, Preussen Munster, who are in like the third or fourth tier of German football. You know, that doesn't exactly bode a lot of confidence to your back line. And for Bayern fans, we're kind of confused because we have Matthias Delict, uh, who had an amazing season last season, but he seems to be supplanted by both uh, Kim Min Jae, who we bought from SSC Napoli in the summer, uh, and obviously Dio Upamakano, who I think was slightly at fault for that first um Casemiro goal against mm -hmm. Manchester United kind of made a, a few whiffs at it, but um, it's just a very interesting situation with that back line too. And especially with the fact that Tuchel has been using Limer uh, as at right back instead of Masrawi in certain situations, especially against Man United, when you'd want to think you'd want to have your most full strength starting 11 out there uh, because regardless of the season or all of the off pitch noises that, you know, are going on with Man United, you know, with your, your Jaden Sancho, uh, the ownership, I, I, it still befuddles me how the Glazers have not let go of that club and, and how they haven't switched ownership. And I genuinely do feel for Manchester United fans in that respect. But um, I know I've kind of rambled on and made a very, very holistic answer. But kind of comparing managers, I, I would kind of condense and say it really feels like Tuchel's been given the full keys. Um, really, the only thing he didn't get that he wanted was a defensive midfielder because his main man was Declan Rice before he made the decision to leave West Ham for Arsenal instead of Bayern Munich. You know, he very much made it clear he wanted to stay uh, in, in England and then London specifically. Amrabat, we were loosely linked with, obviously wound up joining uh, Manchester United. And we did want to uh, maybe get a right back as well, but it was just kind of bizarre that we let both Josip Stanisic and Benjamin Pavard leave after Luca Hernandez had already made his move to Paris Saint-Germain. But with all of that said, regardless of how much power he has or Nagelsmann has had or Hansi Flick had or Jupp Heinkes or whoever it is, um, it definitely feels like it's always that Achilles heel of, you know, not keeping clean sheets, defensive complacency, uh, maybe rushing things instead of keeping possession where you could kind of look at Manchester City and a lot of their players uh, under Guardiola when we were kind of playing that way when he was our manager, just don't concede possession, rather keep possession of the ball. That's that's sort of versus, the... And, and you know, you mentioned that you watch Premier League a lot too, so I'm sure you've seen these arguments. But yes. like, 
when it comes to city defenders, uh, you know, the question of how many of them are actually like really good defenders. And yeah, the, the solution is they don't have to be. Uh, they have to be exactly. good at keeping the ball. And I think that's why, I mean, we saw it last year with the way that John Stones moved into a sort of quasi midfielder center back role. Um, he's yeah, and you a see that everywhere now. with Ruben Diaz. Yeah. I mean, uh, all, all of the defenders at Manchester city have to be good with the ball at their feet. And if, as, as long as that is kind of central to the profile of defenders they bring in, then they're going to continue to reduce the risk of, you know, teams running in behind teams, maintaining possession against them. And hundred percent. And I we can talk about uh, all the other reasons why, (laughs) you know, I said this to my mother as well, being a Manchester United fan. I feel like if Varane and both, uh, you know, you have, you were missing Shaw Varane and Varane, he played uh, against Burnley. He came on as a sub, I think. Yeah. So uh, as well as Amrabat, but you also don't have Luke Shaw. No, in three of the four backline positions we played against Bayern Munich, uh, uh, three three out of the four of the back line were not first choice players in that position. And then you also yeah, exactly. pull these three and Christian Eriksen who were filling in Hoyland. I mean, he's, he's looked good. I, I I'm impressed by him so far, but that was only his second, third game at Manchester United. He was coming right, in yeah. with a back injury. So very much not, um, a full strength side <laughs> that we've gotten to see this. And season. even as a Liverpool fan, I can remember Malastia running a number on us uh, two seasons ago. He, I think he's out injured as well. Um, so I very much think it could have been a, a different look and you definitely have not had very much luck with injuries, but that's par for the course at Bayern Munich as well, too. It's just like the injury gods, they absolutely hate us. And it seems like, you know, whoever the manager is, they're always having to deal with a laundry list of injuries. Uh, but going into that match, I, I took one look at the injury seat and I, I very much do agree with Eric Ten Hag, And I'm a, a very big fan of his that, you know, like he hasn't yet had his best 11 available. And I think it'll be far different for you guys once you actually do uh, and you have that depth luxury. I, I do enjoy the scheduling a little bit that we got the away fixture of this as the first one. Um, you know, I, I would not want to go to the Allianz needing a win on the last week of <laughs> of the Champions League group stage. Obviously, it's not ideal that we're playing them in December or playing you guys in December. Uh, probably needing a result there as well. But um, I, I yeah, think let, that let there's alone a nice... scoring three goals and not even getting a point right. away. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do wonder what the XG for Manchester United was. I mean, those Casemiro chances were... One was probably a high XG chance, the header on the free kick. That was a great delivery from Bruno Fernandez. He's very yeah, capable of that. Um, but the other one was like, it, it looked like Marcial was maybe going to get the chance. And then Casemiro somehow controlled it. And then he fell down. And then he still like placed yeah. it perfectly <laughs> in the corner. Yeah, hit like, it right between uh, Makano and uh, Kim and Jay's legs, it looked like. Yeah, I'm not even sure how you measure that. It, it just seemed like a pure luck goal. Um but yeah, I, obviously the hope is that Manchester United are more informed by the time we play again. Um, and that's actually, for you guys and for us, it was actually very convenient that Galatasaray and Copenhagen uh, drew each other 2-2 yeah. elsewhere in the group. Yeah, this is a very sneakily tricky group. Um, I, I think Copenhagen's probably the fourth place team, uh, but Galatasaray on the road is never really easy. Oh yeah, that's real um, intimidating, and their fans can be... Uh, vociferous raucous whatever word you want to use like the those turkish environments can get very very intense not to say that we both don't have sets of players that are very used to that and shouldn't be too too effective but yeah that can be a very tricky place to play and i very much agree i i on paper i think it's going to be Bayern, man you galatasaray 
uh, with that Europa League spot in FC Copenhagen. But I mean, it is the Champions League and we've been proved wrong. And Bayern has definitely had some bad away days and uh, Moscow back when the Russian teams were still in the competition, FC Ross stuff. So there are no givens in this competition. I think we can all agree with that. Yeah, I, I'm slightly worried because Gal Tassar, uh, they seem to have like just loaded themselves with former Premier League players yeah, and who even like, like uh, could probably like, get a result <laughs> against Manchester United. Or even like I remember that like why is like Zaha going there? Like I don't I yeah. know he's uh it was there's been a lot of uh contract drama with him at Crystal Palace, but like it's all these uh it's been the summer of players not yet in a retirement age going off to uh Saudi or or, or somewhere else, it seems like. Yeah, I'm a little encouraged that it's still mostly players who are kind of getting up there or definitely past it. But yeah, uh, it, 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 it's just like seeing Gabri Vega go to Saudi Arabia at his age of he's still <laughs> like, what, 21, 22. Like he should be removing. Yeah. It was like that young of a Spanish player who's that promising should be moving to like Barcelona, Real Madrid, you would think. <laughs> exactly. Definitely not about the money. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So um, kind of looking past the Champions League, I know you guys won 7-0 this weekend against Bochum, uh, Harry Kane hitting a hat trick. Do you think that, uh, obviously there was a lot of discourse about whether Manchester United should have bought Harry Kane or not. It seemed like yeah. United were one of his preferred destinations if he was going to leave. But I making the, I think, correct decision, which does not happen a lot with our board, <laughs> um, to evaluate the squad and see spending all the money you're able to spend on a striker is not going to fix, you know, your, your hopes yeah. of contending for the next year. Um, instead he goes to Bayern, which I think is a squad much more well-equipped to, if they bring in a world-class striker like Kane, definitely get back to, you know, what they are trying to be, which is obviously winning the Bundesliga and then contending to win the champions league. Do you see that as, the move that was made this summer, or do you still think that, you know, maybe midfield needed more strengthening? There was more defense, defensive issues that should have been addressed. Do you think, or do you think that Harry Kane is like potentially the final piece of a puzzle here? Kind of two answers. I definitely think he's a final piece of the puzzle for the Champions League because I think he's just such a threat, such a goal threat. And as he mentioned after the game against Manchester United, if you were, uh, you know, if you were to, I don't know if it's available, but keep a tactical cam on him for his entire shift before he was replaced eventually. I think it was by Thomas Muller. I, I don't remember if it was him or uh, Matthias Tell now. You know, live tweeting all the substitutions to get mixed up <laughs> after there's been so many of them made. But he kind of spoke about how, uh, I think it was Thierry Henry was asking him, you know, are you a little bit annoyed that at Bayern with the attacking talent and the midfield talent that's there that maybe wasn't there at Tottenham that you can't drop back as much because we know how prolific we're, you know, literally uh, Sun Young Min and Harry Kane were literally the most prolific duo in the Premier League and still are. And a lot of his success came from dropping in deeper and letting uh, players like Sun run in behind, Kulusevsky, other players that they've had. Um, doesn't do as much of that as Bayern because of the quality they have in and around him. But he very much, he kind of mentioned that he played like a number 10 with uh, Jamal Musiala and allowed the runners in behind Serge Gnabry. Lira Zane, who's been having a fantastic season thus far, were very prolific with that, especially in the first half. And for large portions of the second half, Kingsley Coman, when he came on, just a lot of dangerous, dangerous weapons in that regard. And I, I think genuinely from a club perspective, that's what it was all about. 
um, because I think it's no secret that there's a lot of frustration that it's the quarterfinals that we've been knocked out in in the past couple of seasons. It's kind of funny how it worked out last season because Inter Milan were in our group and we rolled them over the course of the uh, the two group stage matches and they went on to get a way more favorable knockout stage draw than we did. You know, we had to knock off PSG to get to Man City, the eventual champions, which, you know, that's just blind luck. Uh, and, you know, other power teams not performing maybe as well as they should have in their respective groups. But nonetheless, I mean, you, you can't, you can't sit back and say it was one thing or the other. It's all just down to luck as far as your progression or lack thereof in the Champions League. But with a, a guy like Harry Kane, who should, and with a player of his caliber, I think that was definitely a big part of his mind. You know, how much longer do I want to, I want to be at a club that's not regularly in the Champions League? Yes, there's the English Premier League scoring record that I could easily break if I play in the Premier League for another two to three seasons conservatively, you know, unless he has... Uh, he could have reached that mark in two seasons. I don't know if he would have been able to. You know, his injury history record is, is pretty favorable. He's not injured too, too often. But that's definitely in the back of his mind, too. I think he wants to be winning the Champions League. I think, you know, he obviously felt it right there in 2019 when Tottenham lost to Liverpool. I think a lot of people had written both of those teams off at uh, you know, at least after the first leg of the semifinals in their respective matchups against Ajax and Barcelona. And it was kind of the two least likely teams to get to the final that made it to the final. And even as a Liverpool fan, objectively, one of the more boring Champions League finals of uh, recent memory. But that I think that's definitely a part of it. As far as the, the Bundesliga and the Day of Pokal, you know, the domestic competitions, I think um, there will be periods when he'll get rotated, especially with the English weeks. Like I doubt we'll see much of him tomorrow uh, against the uh, third, fourth tier side and the day of people call first round where similar, basically Germany's version of the FA cup, where in the uh, early rounds, you see a lot of uh, mixed league uh, mixed tier league matchups, I should say, um, which are always a good watch, especially when the, uh, the lower team is the home team and the fans are really giving it to the big dogs. But I think a big part of it for him was definitely thinking it was time for a change. He is that missing puzzle piece. I, I genuinely would put conservatively at least 30 goals across all competitions for him, unless he experiences some sort of horrific injury, which I really hope doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, with the attacking, the attacking firepower we have, um, I definitely feel that the champions league is a competition that favors uh, attack more than it does defense. That's not to say defense isn't important, but um, I, I think that it's a competition. Like, you know, even in the group stages, we gave up three goals in our first match, but we got the three points. So, uh, you know, the head to head and the points is really what matters in the group stages and scoring goals is what matters at the end of the day. And if you were to, so that's my answer to the question. I do think he was the missing puzzle, puzzle piece. And I think it can really make us go um, really push hard across all three fronts for us. But if you're to ask Thomas Tuchel, a very demanding manager who's very much, we've put out articles recently and everything internally from the club is uh, kind of much of the same of how he was at Borussia Dortmund, Mainz and Chelsea were his way or the highway. And if you were to ask him if it was him sitting in this, in this podcast chair, you know, uh, Thomas Tuchel instead of Thomas Adams, he would say he still wanted a defensive midfielder, even though he got Conrad Limer, who that is an argument for Bundesliga fans and Austria national team fans. They can get, blue in the face before a final verdict is reached. Can he be that number six? Because Thomas Tuchel likes to not have the literal number six, Joshua Kimmich, not play as the number six. He likes him to get involved more in the attack. 
as we see so often in the uh, the Bundesliga and the Champions League, and really like, like to get involved. I understand that though, because I mean, just you know, as a neutral observer, I mean, I you know, I'm not like a Bayern fan. I my Bundesliga team, if I had to say one, is probably Dortmund. So, um, I've spent a lot of time rooting against Bayern Munich, uh, yeah. to, no, to no avail. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I mean, Joshua Kimmich is just such a brilliant player, and it. He he just seems like a Bayern player through and through, and that you know when you think of Bayern or when I think of Bayern, I think of the sheer volume of chance creation that they've been able to make. I think Front Ribery yeah. was a huge part of that. Arjen Robin on the wing or on the other wing, and having that focal point striker of you know whether it used to be Mario Gomez, Mandzukic, and then Robert Lewandowski for such a long time. I think Harry Kane is just the perfect fit for that, and you want yeah. you know to be able to free up your players like Joshua Kimmich uh, to, to go forward and kind of contribute in that way. I think the wingers that they have now are, you know, maybe not as focused on chance creation as the, the Rebri and Robin pairing, but that's just not how the game is really played anymore. You know, your wingers aren't just spamming crosses into the box anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like uh, a lot of us Bayern fans, we say that, uh, you know, Leroy Zane is a prime example, very much a confidence player, a lot of people would look at his body language and think there was an attitude issue there. You know, it was uh, two seasons ago when uh, Nagelsmann's maiden season, when uh, our own home fans were jeering him for not making the proper pass and losing the ball on the break on the counter. But a lot of us feel that with the presence of someone like Harry Kane, it takes a little bit more of the pressure off of him, even though he did often have Lewandowski there. Um, but it's such a different dynamic. You know, there's all, all these comparisons drawn between Lewandowski uh, and Harry Kane, especially now that they both are Bayern or have been Bayern players at least. But I think Kane is a little bit better at dropping a bit deeper, getting involved in the interlink play, especially with a guy like Jamal Musiala, who can play a, such a hybrid role as a number 10, a wide player, uh, even deeper lying midfielder, which we have seen in the past and not really much as of late. But I thought like, especially in the Manchester United match, he was so good on the turn and you know, as a, as a player myself uh, at a former college level and still in adult leagues, like especially when you're feeling rusty, the art of making those quick turns when you're receiving possession with your back to defenders is such a difficult thing to do. And having the presence of mind and the awareness of where people are around you. And it's almost, it's almost in the same way where center backs who are good can make those line splitting passes. You know, if you have a player like Musiala, he can just you know, drop the shoulder or wriggle his body and make a few steps and he's already cutting lines and getting somebody else involved, whether it's Gnabry, Coman, uh, Thomas Muller, if he's on the pitch at the same time, Leroy Zane, Harry Kane, the interlink play is just very exciting. And especially with Kane, who's so used to dropping deeper and allowing those spaces in behind. Uh, it's just a really, really breathtaking to watch. But as you mentioned, um, I'm of the opinion too. I do think Kimmich is a little bit better as a free-flowing center midfielder uh, as opposed to a very solid number six for a while, for a lot of seasons, I would say three seasons ago, the COVID 2019-20 season at its best, Goretzka and Kimmich were one of the best dual midfield pivots, you know, in world football. But that dynamic has slightly changed because the back four has slightly changed. You know, they don't have the veterans like David Alaba, Jerome Boateng, uh, Mats Hummels when they had him before he went back to Borussia Dortmund. Um, and so uh, Davies on the left, a number of different players who were playing on the right, whether it was Benjamin Pavard, uh, Rafinha back when we had him, a veteran presence. So I, I I can see exactly like we were talking about. Tuchel is disappointed not to have gotten uh, a number six. But at the same time, a lot of Bayern fans also just perplexed by that right back 
position. You know, we let Luca Hernandez go, who could play a hybrid either left or left wing back, and then also let Benjamin Pavard go to Inter, and then loaned out Josip Stanisic, who, quite frankly, he deputized quite well every time he was called upon. And, you know, at the start of two seasons ago, when he had to start the season when Pavard was injured, no one uh, was really too, too aware of his name other than a few preseason appearances, and he stood in quite firm, but you know, now we're only down to Nusair Masrawi, um, who we all thought would be the bona fide starter, you know, every every single week to Conrad Limer being used there more than in midfield, it seems like. Yeah, I will say I mean, the EAFC, uh, the new FIFA game came out last week. And I started a career mode as Man United and I got two offers from Bayern Munich for Aaron Wambasaka. So. The computer thinks. The computer. I feel like he's right a player who gets so much unnecessary hate, and he's literally a lot of players say he's one of the best at just one v one defending. Yeah, we don't have time to unpack all the reasons people don't like Erwan <laughs> Basaka. It's a lot of um, a, a lot of it is to do with kind of views of modern fullbacking. Um, Diogo Delo is is good as an inverted fullback. He's very good going forward. Um, probably a I mean, he is better going forward than Aaron Wamasaka. That's always been sort of a weakness in his game, but Wamasaka is capable of going forward. Um, and I, if you would ask me, I would say he's a better defender than Diogo Delo. I think both yeah. of them are, are good players. I'm pretty it's happy like, with the right back. Like you're saying, what even, you said that earlier, what healthy. even is a, a, a modern day defender? Right. <laughs> How yeah. much do you have to defend? <laughs> and and th- I think there are weaknesses in his defensive game too. Um, like coordinating with, the center back on his side has sometimes been a problem. He'll let a man slip at the back post. Uh, that's happened a few times, but uh, as a one-on-one defender, it's there are moments where he seems almost like uh, Darrell Rivas. Like it's like <laughs> Rivas Island over there. If he's one-on-one with somebody. Um, and I think he's a little bit of a confidence player too, uh, which, mm. you know, for, for a defender is really important anyway, because it's such a hard position to play in the Premier league, uh, let alone at Manchester United. But, um, two years two years ago, we saw an unconfident Aaron Wambasaka, and it was one of the worst defensive seasons at Manchester United. You know, it was it was a it was a low confidence year for the entire defense, really. Um, and then last year, you know, Eric Tenog was like, "I I need you." Dello's injured. I I need you for two to three months. And now he's you know picked over Dello when both are healthy. So. Uh, I, I obviously Eric Tenog sees something in him too. The fan base is still very much divided. I think a lot of people would would rather see Wambasaka go, but um, you know, having two decent right backs isn't so bad. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we've only got a few minutes left, but um, I, I did want to gauge kind of your uh thoughts on Manchester United. I know you said you know you're a Liverpool supporter when it comes to the Premier League, but. Uh, how much have you kind of kept an eye on Manchester United? And do you think that there's still some positivity to be had uh, despite the start to the season? A fair amount. And it, it's funny, like, I don't know how many Liverpool fans would stumble across this, but, you know, I've been a Liverpool supporter since maybe 2004-ish when I first saw them play a preseason friendly in Hartford, Connecticut, which is not too far from where I live. They played Celtic. So I got to see most of those guys who went on to win the Champions League that next season. Uh, in Istanbul, but, you know, back then, you know, I was so used to taking a beating from Manchester United, you know, in the mid, mid two thousands to uh, late two thousands, pretty much up until the period before uh, Sir Alex Ferguson left, 
you know, at the hands of, at the behest of Cristiano Ronaldo, Paul Scholes, Darren Fletcher, when those guys were, you know, bossing the midfield, Rio Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, all of those guys, that era of Manchester United. Um, I definitely see, you know, some positivity in moments, but it definitely does seem like there's a, like I said, I feel bad almost. I They're definitely not my, I don't have this uh, burning hate for Manchester United, especially as a, I guess you could call it a younger generation Liverpool fan. I definitely dislike the way Chelsea is run uh, <clears throat> a lot more. I find it hilarious the amount of money that they've spent and they're still like pretty damn awful right now. And especially with Enzo Fernandez or not Enzo Fernandez, Moises Caicedo, you know, one foot in the door at Liverpool, then choosing to join Chelsea. And, you know, we have Shabash Lai just absolutely bossing it right now, right now next to McAllister and Chelsea cannot buy a point literally <laughs> but and then man city you know just uh it seems they've can just get away with anything financially it's not to say that every club doesn't have a little bit of dirt in that sense but you know they basically bought away uh solutions to their problems which not every club can do in that same respect so i have a little bit more uh disdain for those clubs than i do manchester united and as someone like I just I still I don't know um, how old you are. I'm 32, but when I was growing up, maybe it's just a little bit of nostalgia, like those mid 2000s and uh, mid, like just before the 2010s. It seemed like such a like a, the glory period where there were so many good players at the peak of their powers, especially in the Premier League. And I know that Liverpool wasn't really um, winning or getting around winning. Yeah. I know the 08 09 season. I remember vividly. We came very close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's the when, period like, I grew up as well. So, like, Wayne Rooney was my my favorite player growing up. And, yeah, and there was uh, when so I think many... of that era, I still think of like Fernando Torres, Steven Gerrard, uh, Chabi Alonso. Going to now, like it, like Alex Ferguson was the boss, and you know whatever his relationship with the ownership was like, whatever his relationship with Ed Woodward was like. Now it just seems like no. Why have we come to a point where all of a sudden a player like Jaden Sancho and Eric Ten Hag, who has a World class, world class pedigree at a manager at other clubs, you know his time in Bayern Munich's youth, his time with Ajax. Why are they having such uh, different views of what his training performances are like to the point where he's been asked to not play anymore? Like some kind of you know cultural issue is definitely lurking behind the scenes, and it seems like it has, and it's gotten to a point where just there's just so much pressure every single time they lace up for a match for all of the players that the slightest thing that goes wrong, it's just, uh, it just weighs on them a lot, a lot heavier. I mean, look at Bruno Fernandez's goal against Burnley. I mean, that was a hell of a strike. Like there's, there's a, a glimpse of it for you right there. That's what they're capable of. You know, I think it was, uh, and then Johnny Evans, like coming, he had that goal ruled out for, uh, for offside. Like the fact that he can still lace up, run with the best of them and score a goal that is just marginally ruled offside is a, definitely a, a sign of hope and keeping a clean sheet albeit Burnley, but, you know, away matches, away points in the Premier League are are golden, worth their weight in gold, whether it's a point or three points, makes a difference in the end. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I just, I genuinely do feel bad, you know, especially looking back to, I remember two seasons ago, or I think it was two seasons, two or three seasons ago, getting ready to watch Liverpool Man United with my, my mom, and then all of a sudden the game's called off because of the protests. And that's happened. We've had a few instances in the past, you know, the green and yellow scarves, and yet still nothing has changed. Um, I know that there's been a lot of different entities vying to uh, become owners of Manchester United, but I think that 
the fan base deserves it because I just I genuinely feel bad and you know I I hate when it's treated as a uh, you know a commodity uh, and just a, a revenue source without any connection to the fans or the culture um, or the grassroots and you know everything that's connected to that. So while there are signs of hope, you know there are definitely big changes that need to take place behind the scenes. I don't know if you would feel the same or the majority of your fan base. Yeah. Um, I I'm still very skeptical on the reasons, uh, for the, you know, the two main parties that are putting in bids. Um, I, I would think Ratcliffe is, you know, the preferable option to being a state owned club. I think that would be, I think that would be it for a lot of Manchester United fans at that point. Uh, obviously there's a very large online presence that, uh, is in favor of, you know, that route. Uh, as opposed to Ratcliffe and Ratcliffe is, you know, no saint himself. He's, you know, British oil magnate. He was a, a big voice uh, when Brexit was an issue. There's, there's all sorts of issues that come with Ratcliffe as well, but yeah. Um, you know, I mean, tonight uh, we, we just saw the news uh, before starting to record. Uh, there's a, there's a banner flying over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers stadium on Monday night football. That's going to say, oh, yeah. out. And uh, I, I think that's goal number one for a lot of United fans, and I understand why. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'd have to agree. Like, even as someone who grew grew up like severely disliking Manchester United and all of their success, like, like I said, now the landscape has changed so much. Understanding Chelsea's success, why they were so successful after Roman Abramovich came in. The same with uh, the Emiratis having their influence in Manchester City. I, I definitely. Uh, and even Newcastle now, all of a sudden being in the Champions League after the Saudi Arabia takeover from that that consortium. So I definitely uh, feel for Manchester United fans and, and hope that they can turn it around and be a, at least a, a shade of what they were uh, in the Sir Alex Ferguson eras. Yeah, well, we we hope so too. <laughs> uh, Tom, uh, we're, we're running out of time now, but uh, thank you so much for joining me and uh, hope to do this again for the next match. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.